Before we get started this morning, I just wanted to take a moment and pray. I know many of you have had a challenging week, but last night, Justin and Chelsea reached out to me. They were down in Maryland for a wedding, and their four-year-old niece uh, had to be air-flighted um, to John Hopkins, and apparently had like, a tumor or cyst in her brain, and uh, is in a coma while they do surgery. So the family is obviously very upset, and uh, Justin and Chelsea are very upset. They're still down there this morning, so I thought we'd take a minute and pray for them, and pray for little Audrey, um, and just pray that God does a miracle and heals her. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you hear us, and we're not just on earth and when we feel powerless and out of control, we're not on our own, but we have an all-powerful, all-loving God that we can talk to who's at work in our world and our lives. And God, there are sometimes when life overwhelms us and we have nowhere to turn, where medicine can't give us answers or hope, where people and power and money and resources can't give us hope, where all our talents and skills can do nothing. And Lord, it is so wonderful that in those moments we have someone who can do something. We have someone who cares and someone we can turn to in that season. Lord, I pray for Dustin and Chelsea. But I pray for that entire family. I pray for the mom and dad of this little girl. I pray for Audrey, that you will supernaturally heal her. Lord, I pray that you give the surgeons wisdom and guidance. Lord, I pray that she will quickly heal and recover. And Lord, I pray that there is no long-term damage or scarring or issues as a result of this. Lord, I don't understand why this situation happens. Lord, I know we're in a broken world, but Lord, I pray that you bring peace to the hurting people. Lord, I pray that you'll heal her, that you'll work through this, and somehow you'll bring good out of what is evil. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus Christ would. Amen. Uh, have you ever heard anyone say this? One million fans can't be wrong. And it's usually like in some kind of ad. And it's like, buy this album, buy this game, go see this concert, because one million fans can't be wrong. Advertisers often use this bandwagon argument to convince us to join something that everyone else is already doing. Because nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd, and if a million people like something, well then, it's got to be worth liking, right? The only problem with this is, sometimes millions of people can be wrong. Close to 80% of the German population in World War II supported the Nazi regime as it took power. That's almost 10 million Germans who were wrong. And so just because it's a huge crowd doesn't mean that they were right. Millions of people can be dead wrong about something. Just because they have big numbers doesn't mean that they were right. In American culture, I think we've believed a lie, and I think it's infiltrated every aspect of our culture, and this is the lie we believe. Bigger is better. Anything good could be better if it was bigger. Now, what would you rather have? A small weed? Go ahead and go to the next slide for me. Thank you. So on the, um, your left, we have a giant thistle. That's a gigantic weed. And then on the, uh, the other side here, we have a really small flower that grew in some gravel. I'd rather have the flower than the giant thistle. Now, I'd probably take a picture of the thistle because I'd be like, that thing's huge, and then I'd kill it because I don't want it. It's better to have a small flower than a big weed. And so just because something is big doesn't mean that it's better. Go ahead to the next slide there, guards. Would you rather have a big pile of broccoli or a small plate of bacon? Broccoli. 
You'd rather have the broccoli? There's always one person who's like, I'm gonna contradict. But I would rather have the bacon than the broccoli. Sean is the only person I know who talks about bacon in every conversation I've ever had with him. He loves bacon. So Sean, I'm gonna ask you, would you rather have this big bag of broccoli or this one piece of bacon? Bacon. Bacon, here. I'm gonna go ahead and give it to you. Um, just because this is more doesn't mean that it's bad, right? But our natural tendency is to assume if you get more, if you get bigger, it's better. We think bigger houses and bigger cars and bigger budgets and bigger crowds will equal bigger happiness, but they don't. I could have given him a big bag of broccoli and Sean wouldn't have been as happy as if I gave him a small bag of bacon. Just because something is bigger doesn't mean that it's more valuable than something small. Just because something is bigger doesn't mean that it's better than something small. But fame says, Big is more important than small. Fame says a crowd is more important than a person. And we buy into this thinking even inside of the church. Even among those who say we're trying to live in love like Jesus, many times we start to think like this. And we invite people from big churches to speak or big churches to lead or big churches to teach. Now I heard about a church planter who started a church and on his first Sunday he had close to a thousand people show up. That's incredible. That's, that's an amazing start. And I heard some other pastors talking about him, and this is what they said. This is a direct quote. They said, he must be doing something right to get that many people to show up. And essentially what they were saying was, because he had big numbers, they were convinced that he was doing something right. If you have big numbers, you're right. If you have small numbers, you're wrong. Big equals right. So I started to explore a little bit, because I'm like, I don't have a thousand What's this guy doing? You know, like, what, what can I take away from this? What can I learn from this? And so his first week, he had close to 900 people show up, and then 500 his second week, and then 100, and finally ended up with 10 people. And I was like, what happened? What was going on there? Well, the first week, he gave away a motorcycle. The second week, he gave away a Mac computer. Third week, he gave away an iPad, and then he ran out of money, and he was left with 10 people. But these pastors who had looked at his first service and said, you know what, he must be doing something right because he has so many people. But when I actually dug into it, I was like, I'm not sure he's doing something right. He didn't actually end up keeping any of those people and end up reaching any of those people. And I started thinking about, you know, I'm not Muslim at all, but I'd show up at a mosque if they were giving away a motorcycle. I'd like to have a motorcycle. My wife says I can't have a motorcycle. But, you know... I think sometimes, though, we think that if it's big, they must be doing something right. But big doesn't mean you're necessarily doing something right. We're conditioned to believe that big is naturally better than small. And a huge part of this is because of advertising. Do you realize the difference between an iPhone 5 and an iPhone 10 isn't that great of a difference? Think about it. I still check emails on it, like I did on my iPhone 5. I still take pictures with it in video, like I did on my iPhone 5. I still um, get on there and get on social media. I still get on the internet. I still take phone calls. It, it really does nothing different than my old one did. You know the only difference? They've been gradually getting bigger. Each generation keeps getting a little bit bigger because we've been convinced that bigger is better. Even though it technically does the exact same things, we're like, it's bigger. It's gotta be better, right? I need the new one because it's bigger. It has a bigger number attached to it. It's an iPhone 10, that's gotta be better. And it's bigger screen, bigger is better. 
But the other lie on the other side of things that we believed is that big is inherently bad. Darby, when she was growing up, went to a church of 25,000 people. It was a phenomenally excellent church. As a millennial, I'm very distrustful of big things, big organizations, because I lived through the recession where corporations and banks that were too big to fail ended up failing. And so I automatically see big things and I'm like, I don't trust this. It's too big. But big isn't necessarily bad. See, big isn't bad. It just isn't better. Two extremes of the same lie. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord, God says to Samuel, when he's looking at picking out um, a king, he says this, Do not consider what he looks like or his height, for I have rejected him. Talking about King Saul. And here's what God says. I do not look at the things people look at. And I think sometimes we look at an organization or we look at something and we say, you know what? We're judging the success on this based on its size. And God says, I don't look at the same things you look at. I'm looking at different parameters. I'm looking at different goals. God looks at things differently. And we need to develop a uh, sense for what God sees rather than what culture teaches us to see. In the words of a seminary professor I had, he said this. Everything God does always starts small, works gradually, and ends up permeating thoroughly. He says everything God does, it starts small, and it doesn't, it's just not all of a sudden you wake up one day and it's like huge, it's, it's gradual, but it ends up affecting many things. In Zechariah 4.10 it says, don't belittle a small beginning because God loves to see things start small. And the danger, I think, is when the church believes this lie, we forget that no matter how big we get, God is always bigger than we are. No matter how big you get, we're smaller than our God. It starts to move our focus from God to us, and we start to look like how big we are, and we forget how big He is. If our giant God is working through someone, it doesn't matter how big they are, we need to be looking at how big God is, not how big or small and one of the things I love about Jesus is we see that Jesus in his ministry on earth, he consistently dismissed the crowds to focus on the disciples. He said, I've got a crowd here. Okay, crowd go away. I'm going to spend some time focusing on these individuals. And many times in modern churches, we dismiss discipleship to focus on the crowds. Discipleship is learning to live and love like Jesus through relationships. Jesus had three years to change the world. He started his ministry at 30, he died at 33, and he says, I have three years to change the world. Now me, I would have been like, okay, how can we globalize this thing? Get the biggest crowds we can, we've got to get advertising up, we've got to send this everywhere, we're going to be sending messages throughout the Roman Empire. He says, I'm going to take 12 people and invest in them. It's a very different approach than I would have had. And yet, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about Jesus. We're still talking about his life and his message because he didn't invest big, he invested small. His plan wasn't to amass a crowd, but to train 12 men who could train others. Individuals who impact individuals whose impact lasts long past their lifetime. See, Jesus didn't measure his impact or his success on how big his impact during his life was. He was more interested in loving the people in front of him and less interested in whether or not the crowd was affirming him. He constantly stepped away from the crowd to step into the life of an individual. And I just threw out a couple examples here. There was a crowd where people were gathered around him and there was a lady with a blood disorder and he's like, hey, there's somebody here who touched me. 
And they're like, everybody's texting you, you're in a crowd. And he's like, no, no, no. There's someone whose life I need to step into. There was a blind man who he was begging for money and people were passing by. And Jesus was like, let, let me stop down, make some mud, and heal his eyes. Remember when the children were coming to Jesus? And the disciples were like, you don't got time for that. You're an important speaker. You can't be playing with kids. Back, kids, back. You know, you've got, you got big places to be. And he's like, oh, you don't have to be my bodyguard. I've always got time for children. He was at a meal, and a woman came in and washed his feet with her tears. And he stops paying attention to the religious people to focus in on this sinner who had interrupted this dinner. See, we like big gatherings as leaders because that allows us to keep people at a distance so they don't see our flaws. See, if there's a big crowd out here, I can be a person on stage, but not a person you get to know. And that way you never see my flaws. You're only like, oh. Alex is just a great speaker, Alex is so great, but you don't get to see the messy parts of me. And so many times as leaders, we're drawn to crowds because it becomes a buffer between people seeing us for who we really are and how much we still need to actually grow. A crowd can affirm a leader's ego, but investing in a single person often seems small in the grand scheme of things. We're like, what's the value of that? I could invest in this crowd and they could all hear me, or I could invest in this single person and that just seems so small, so unimportant. Jesus saw incredible value in each person that he met, whether they were a prostitute, whether they were a leper, whether they were a drunken fisherman. Every person he encountered, he said, this person matters. They're not pointless, they matter. And when we invest in ordinary people, something extraordinary happens because I believe that relationships change the world. Wars try to change the world. Politics try to change the world. But you know what changes the world? Relationships. Because relationships change people. In Luke 15, Jesus ends up telling three stories about three different individuals and individual things. First, he tells the story of the missing sheep, the story of a missing coin, and the story of the missing son. And in the first case, he has all these sheep and one sheep's away. In the second, you have all these coins and one coin's missing. In the last, you have this family and one person's missing. <clears throat> in each of these, there's an individual, and the focus moves from the group to the individual. And today, we're going to look at the story he told about the missing sheep. And this is in Luke 15, verses 1 through 7. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but... The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told him this story. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and you lose one of them. Don't you leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until you find it? And when you find it, don't you joyfully put it on your shoulder and go home? And then you call your friends and your neighbors and you say, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be me. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Um, Jesus didn't seem to enjoy hanging out with religious people. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he enjoyed hanging out with the people who needed him and not the people who were constantly questioning him and accusing him. And in this passage here, we see that they're muttering. Have you ever had that? You've been around somebody and you, they're just going there. My grandpa was a mutterer. He was always mad about something. 
And uh, so you being in a room and you just feel the malice coming off of him because he's unhappy about something. And he's like, rah, 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 I can't believe we're I hate eating at this place. What are we eating at? That's what they were doing. They were muttering. And I think sometimes religious people are really boring and tedious and they're really quick to condemn you if you slip up. Jesus here is trying to share with people about who he is. And these religious people are like, I can't believe you're hanging out with them. I can't believe you're doing that. They forget that we're all equally in need of the cross. They needed Jesus just as much as these people. But they considered themselves to be in a position where they could look at these people and say, Oh no, you need Jesus more than I do. Jesus always hung out with hurting people. People who weren't going to condemn or question. They were people who were just hungry for help. Um, in Tennessee, when I was preaching in as a pastor in Tennessee, I was always afraid that sometime when I was preaching, I was going to slip up and swear in the sermon. Now, if you've been around me, you know I'm not a person who uses a lot of profanity. I rarely, if ever, use profanity. I just, I don't care for it. I don't use it a lot. But I was so afraid that sometime I'd be preaching a sermon and I'd just slip up. You know, I'd get talking too fast and my brain would be thinking somewhere else and I would just say it. And I knew if that happened, man, that church would have come down on me. Now, I love them. They were good people, but they would have been like, oh, I can't believe you said that. Never can you preach again. You violated this sacred place. You know, uh, I don't have that fear here as I preach here because I think if I ended up swearing in a sermon here, people would be like, yeah, Alex, Alex finally swore I heard him. He'd probably cheer. But there's something tiring about being around religious people, right? You are constantly looking for a chance to jump into your life and tell you where Jesus hung out with people who needed him. So sometimes it's very easy to draw a crowd of religious people, but Jesus constantly invested in people who were far away from God. Individuals who didn't have a likely future. Individuals who he couldn't say, ooh, this is going to be a powerful leader in the Christian church because look at all their skills and look how religious they are. Instead, he invested in ordinary, broken and then we see in this story in verse 7 that heaven isn't very impressed when we gather a huge gathering of Christians. We get excited about that. Like I've been to some events down in um, Atlanta, Georgia. There's some events around Easter where tens of thousands of churches come together to celebrate the resurrection. I think that's awesome. It's a great experience. Great bands play. There's great speakers. And you're like, yes, Jesus is alive. It's a great feeling. But Jesus doesn't say heaven gets excited about that. It doesn't say that heaven throws a huge party when a bunch of religious Christians get together. It says heaven gets excited when we prioritize people far away from God. Notice what it says here. He says um, in verse 7, I tell you in the same way there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Heaven throws a party. When someone far away from God comes close to Jesus. We throw a party when a whole bunch of Christians get together and we go, look how big this crowd is. God looks at things differently than we do. Erwin McManus, uh, he has a church out in Hollywood, California. He says this, we say we want to reach the world for Jesus, but in practice, we want to reach Christians for church. We get more excited about seeing a big group of Christians than we get excited about one person far away from God coming here Heaven thinks differently. Heaven celebrates differently. 
And so Jesus tells this simple story about this missing sheep with a very profound truth. Jesus rejoices over relationships restored, not religion. That's what he gets excited about here. He says, that's what heaven gets excited about. So many times in my American mentality, as I think about church, I get more excited about the 99 sheep out in the field than I do about the one sheep that's missing. That's not the perspective that Jesus has in the story. Every person you encounter, every person I encounter, has value because they're made in the image of God. Every person has been handcrafted by God, and too often we value the big crowd that gets attention rather than the individual. And when we do that, we begin to devalue people outside of the number that they add to the crowd. We no longer see them as individuals with hopes and dreams and hurts. We just see them as part of a bigger group. Many times we're more interested in how many people show up to something than we are in whether or not God shows up. We're like, man, if we could get a big crowd, that'd be awesome. But if God doesn't show up, what's that matter? It matters a lot more if he shows up than if a huge crowd shows up. It matters a lot more if we reach that one sheep that's far away rather than the 99 who show up. But so often we're more interested in people showing up than we are in God showing up. And some of that, as a pastor, I can just tell you, some of that is because when God shows up, he never seems to bring any cash with him. People have cash. We're like, oh, come in and bring your money. God shows up and he always seems to be missing cash. He's like, I'm here. I'm bringing supernatural power and presence of myself. And we're like, God, where's the money? Show us the money. I mean, that's just American Christianity. I'm just being honest with you about so many times what, what pastors think. Jesus never operated like this. See, if people are projects that we have in order to accomplish a goal of getting big, we're going to give up on them when they're not faithful or they no longer uh, show response or results. But if your goal is to love people, you'll stick with them. You'll stay with them, even if they don't show responses or results. Anytime something tells you to leave the one to focus on the 99, that's satanic thinking. That's not Jesus thinking. Jesus is always saying, how do we leave the crowd? How do we leave this success to focus on the person who's not here yet? God has put people in front of you and in front of me. He's put people into our lives, into our workplaces, into our schools. And they may not be the people that you like being around. They not, may not be the people you enjoy being around, the people you dreamed of being around. But he's positioned you so that he can love them through you. He's positioned me so that he can love them through me. Mark Batterson, he's a church planner in Washington, D.C. He said this, when we do small things like they are big things, God tends to do big things like they are small things. And I think sometimes I'm so focused on big things. I'm like, well, that's, that's not a priority. That's a tiny detail. I'm not a detail person. I like big vision things. But it's in the tiny details that we show faithfulness. And God honors that faithfulness. Now, you might have a small role in a tiny company, or you might have a small ministry or a small family. You might be a stay-at-home mom or feel like your life doesn't matter or that you're in a dead-end job that seems pointless. But the beauty of Jesus and his kingdom is that the small matters most. That's what he's looking at. That's what he cares about when we focus on that one conversation. It's not just the headliners that matter to Jesus. He doesn't care about the big names. It's the janitor in the back hall that's important to him. 
See, Jesus puts the emphasis on the way that we treat people, the way that we talk to people, the way that we forgive people, not the world-changing landmark impression that our life leaves on this planet. That's what we look at. That's what we celebrate. And God says, I celebrate the small things you do. They're big for me. Your small act of service or your small act of kindness is big to Jesus. Your small act of obedience or growth is big to Jesus. Jesus is never impressed by the size or the flash of our spectacle. And sometimes American Christianity can be quite a spectacle. We can do really big, impressive things. We have a lot of money and resources and talent and people. But he's most impressed with how faithful we are with the small things that will never gather attention or applause. How faithful are you with the small things? That's a question I had to ask myself this week. Am I faithful with the things where people see me and applause or can give me some type of feedback? Or am I faithful with the small things, the way that I treat my wife, the way that I pray each day, the way that I study God's word? Or am I only faithful in the things that have outward attention? Now, at this point in the sermon, you might be like, Alex, you sound like the bitter pastor of a small church who's railing against anything big. Maybe you wouldn't say that, but maybe you're thinking that. Maybe you're watching this, you're like, yeah, it's because you have a small church. It's easy for you to say these things that big isn't better and all this. But you, you might suggest, what about the counterpoint? Big means more people are getting the message, right? I hear this all the time. You want your church to grow so that it can be bigger and more people can get the message. Don't you want more people to know about Jesus? Absolutely, I want more people to know about Jesus. But it's very arrogant of me to think that people are only getting the message of Jesus through my church. It's very arrogant of me to assume that the message of Jesus stops if I don't grow. Everything doesn't depend on us. Everything doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on Horizon. God wants to include us in what he is doing. He wants us to join the family business of reconciling people far away from God. If you've become a follower of Jesus Christ, he's adopted you into the family of God. And he says, guess what? You get to join the family business. And our family business is finding the one sheep who's far away from the flock and introducing them to Jesus. We love reconciling broken relationships. That's God's family business. And he says, I want you to be a part of that. But guess what? If you don't, if you fail, if you're small, that doesn't stop me. I'm still going to be about this work. He invites us to join the family business. It's a privilege, not a burden we've been handed. And then I was listening to a podcast this week, and the, the gentleman on there was talking about how every healthy thing grows. And he's talking about organizations should keep growing and growing and growing, and every year they should be bigger, and they should have bigger budgets, and they should keep growing, because he said healthy things grow and unhealthy things die. So if we use this type of mentality in the church, it means that our churches should constantly be growing, our budgets should constantly be growing. But you know what? How healthy is that as we look at the real world? All healthy things grow to adulthood, and then they multiply. Any growing I did after 21 or so has been mostly around the waist. That's unhealthy growth. That slowed me down. That's made me fat and sluggish. Or if there's other growth, it's internal, and it's cancer, and it's killing me. Right? Growth after adulthood is unhealthy growth. But we have this mentality in the church where we're like, we need to keep growing and growing and get as big, as big as we can get. Instead of saying, let's grow to adulthood, let's grow until we're healthy and mature, and then what happens to adults? 
they multiply. If you're a healthy adult, you have children, you multiply. There's more of you. You spread who you are and what you've learned into more people. Any other type of growth is unhealthy. And so do I want our church to grow? Yes, I'd like us to grow to adulthood, not so that we can see how big Horizon can get. What's the point of that? God's not impressed with that. I want us to grow to the point where we can multiply, where we can spread and impact more of the world. So that like all things that God does, we can start small, grow gradually, and permeate thoroughly our culture, our city, our community. So, do you feel small and unimportant? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I look at my life and I'm like, the world is so big and I'm so small. Our church is so small and our city is so big. How are we going to do anything? How are we going to make any type of impact that matters? Impact one person. Impact an individual. You're not small to Jesus. You're important to Jesus. And the small acts you take every day and that I take every day The way you love people, the way you live, isn't small to God, it's big. You know, Carson Wentz, the um, quarterback for the Eagles, he, if you've ever noticed, he's got the audience of one. He started this charity. And uh, what he says is, he says, I play and I live for an audience of one, God. He's my only audience that I care about. In Galatians 1.10, it says, do I seek the applause of men? Or of God. Men say, make it big or I don't care. God says, be faithful in the small. And that's what I care about most. Be faithful in small things because a big God is cheering you on. See, if Jesus is your audience, he's bigger than any human crowd. If we took every human being who has ever existed across all time and space, and we put them in front of you, God's bigger than that. So do we want a big human audience? Or would we rather play and serve and love and live to the biggest audience of all, God himself? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder and this challenge to my heart. God, forgive me because in the back of my heart, there is a longing to be a big deal. And I'm sorry because you put me here not to make myself a big deal, but to make you a big deal. And God, small matters. Individuals matter to you. God, let me never lose sight of the fact that every person is a person made in your image, made to declare your glory, and a person that you find infinitely worth dying for. Forgive me sometimes, Lord, for looking at how big something can get instead of looking at how valuable each small interaction and comment Lord, I pray that you will help us be faithful in the small things. And God, I pray that you'll surprise us with how big you are. Amen. Amen.